0: All right. Let's move over to uh, Acts chapter 16. We'll get stuck in today. If you recall, or if you weren't with us last week, we looked at uh, Paul arriving there in uh, going through Derby and Lystra, picking up Timothy. Then we talked about uh, them meeting Lydia. If you recall, they show up in Philippi. They go to uh, a place where they believe prayer would be made there by a riverside, and they meet Lydia and her household. And so, They uh, engage with Lydia. They discuss. It says the Lord opened Lydia's heart to hear what Paul had to say. So, Paul giving the gospel, Uh, Lydia gets saved. Her household also receives the message of the gospel. And after that, you have uh, Lydia, just such a great example. It's she, she says to Paul and to Silas and Luke and Timothy, if you've judged me faithful, will you please come to my house? And she ends up facilitating basically the first church there in Philippi. And it, it, uh, uh, it's going to, that's a lot of echo. It's going to go on and, um, and grow and do all sorts of cool stuff. Then uh, the, the way she goes about it is she asks them, she says, will you please come to my house? And then she urges them, and she prevailed upon them. And just what a heart that she says, you know, I, I really want to be involved with this. I really want to be part of what you're doing. You know, please, uh, you know, let me be involved and let me do this thing. And, and really just talking about that and how we can interact with each other and how important it is, Lydia doesn't roll up on Paul and say, you should do this, this is how you should do it, you know, you must do this, but with one another, we can work with each other. And she says, hey, I'd like you to come to my house. I'd like to facilitate this. I'd like to be part of this. You are willing for that. There's this community, this agreement, and this great thing comes out of it. So this week, uh, we're going to look at the, the rest, or, or I should say the middle portion of chapter 16. And one of the things I was reading it, it's, it's a great chapter for today because it's just a really, a lot of bad stuff happens. And I don't know about you, but the world that we live in right now, and I'm not here to dwell on this, there's just a lot of bad stuff happening, right? There's a lot of isolation that's going on. Uh, There's a lot of financial failure that's going on. There's the virus. There's death that's going on. There's fear that's going on. There's anxiety and all the things that are kind of mixed in. There's isolation just based on what one person believes about a mask and what another person believes about a mask. There's isolation based on somebody who feels safe or doesn't feel safe, and then it's just—it's crazy. I mean, I don't—you I don't, I don't even know how to explain it. I, I, you don't even feel like you could talk your way through it or understand it. How we as a society have like devolved to this really weird place of just badness. <laughs> I'm on Facebook. Um, and so because of that, it can be so discouraging, can it? You know, Jesus, he, may, he told us a lot about what the end times would be like, right? He said that uh, everything that is right will be called wrong, and everything that is wrong will be called right. We kind of we live in that a little bit today. And some of the, the uh, maybe some of the big things, uh, sexual context and these things, but also even just in social context. You know remember, it used to be that you could have a disagreement, you would talk about it, you'd work through it, you'd shake hands, and that would be the end of it. Now every, every social disagreement we have, we like launch a nuclear missile at the other person. <laughs> and we want to destroy them. You know so socially, financially, I was watching a, I get up pretty early, usually on Sundays. And uh, so uh, I, just, I just usually just watch YouTube. I, I love documentaries. I'm a pretty boring person. So I like just watching documentaries, different things um, from both sides of the political spectrum. And I was, I was watching this documentary this morning uh, on um, big cities in America. And that big cities in America are, because of the COVID and a lot of other things, that they're rapidly declining. So what's happening is because of telecommunication, because there's not as much entertainment in the big cities, and specifically like San Francisco and, and uh, New York and some other ones. That what's happening is that people are moving out of the big cities, and so the occupancy or the, the, the non occupancy percentages are going up to like 10, 12 percent, meaning of the available housing in those big cities, 10 percent of those houses and apartments are not filled anymore, which last year at this time, it was for a lot of cities it was around four percent, four or five percent. And I'll spare you all the gory details, but the long and the short of it is that these bigger cities are now, they're finding a gigantic, basically spiral down the drain because a huge amount of money comes from property taxes. And so what you have is people not, they're selling properties and they're, they're, or they're not occupied and so landlords can't afford their property taxes, all this crazy. So what's happening is budgets are plummeting, you know, budgets where you get like roads and police and sometimes, you know, hospitals for, for low-income hospitals, all that stuff. It's all subsidized. And 60% of many of the, the budgets of large cities in America comes from property taxes. So all over the place, you're getting these huge hits, and people are leaving these, these metropolis to be able to go to the suburbs and buy something significantly cheaper and telecommute. And we go, oh, that's not a big deal, until you start to realize that that, that trend... And that lack of money and all those things, like you might have noticed, that there's a, I think a one trillion dollar just uh, cities, just municipality bailout or, or uh, stimulus that's on the on the thing right here. Well, if that's going to wave out, that that fiscal reality will will wave, uh, you know, like a, like a a, a a stone in a pond. It'll reach Long Beach someday, and in, in these financial difficulties. And I don't know about you, but it's scary, right? I have kids. I usually like to feed them, you know? I usually like to buy them presents. I usually like to make sure they're warm, right? This begins to threaten all those things. So you have, like, weird isolation. You have weird fiscal possibilities, and and, and honestly, in this ignorant man's opinion, probabilities of some pretty radical destruction in the U.S., you know, the fact that we can't get around along with one another. You know, the fact that, that even in, in church, we can have these vehement disagreements. And oftentimes our response is just to say, screw you, I'm out. And it's really weird. And it's really discouraging. Jesus told us, he said, in the last days, because iniquity will abound, the love of many and the love of most will grow cold. And I don't, I'm not, I don't claim to fully know what that means, but have kind of changed over the years. And I don't think it's this, this like the idea that all of a sudden the, the church is like, oh, you guys don't do what you should, so I don't love Jesus anymore, or something like that. But I think it's way more along the lines of you start to see, because you know, iniquity, the idea of just saying no to God, the idea of rejecting what he has to say, and when you see that get farther down the line in social circles, in, in, in all the different ways in society it's hard to maintain any kind of fervency, any kind of love. It's a lot easier to just say, ah, screw it. This isn't worth it. I'm just going to isolate. I'm just going to just go into myself. And then we begin to self-medicate, whether it's, we've talked about this, whether it's Netflix or weed or alcohol or whatever it might be. And we try to find some sort of contentment or temporal comfort. And all these different things are substances. You know, years ago, working for EMS, um, and I don't, I don't know why this one sticks in my mind, um, but working in EMS, I, I went to a suicide. I went to a lot of suicides, but I went to the suicide. And it was a 19-year-old gal who had shot herself in the head. And so we show up on the scene, and there, you know, she's laying on her bed. She's got a hole in her head. She's bleeding out of it. And we're just there to throw a monitor on her, to make sure that she's dead, that there's no chance of resuscitation. And I don't want to be weird, but I just remember looking at her and just thinking to myself, because she was a fairly attractive person. Not that that means that you're happy or sad or something, but she lived in a decent house. Their computer was right next to her head. And I just thought how, why did this person who's 19 years old come to the conclusion that there's no better option, except to be dead. You know, the 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 uh, permanent solution to most likely our temporal problems. And and I just and I think that it, when Jesus is talking about love growing cold, I think when we look at all the crazy things that are happening, things that we don't like or that we're concerned about, or whatever, that they can really get to us. And they can really bring us to a place where we want to give up. We want to throw in the towel. We want to say it's not worth it. There's no hope. And maybe you felt that you know, that way in, this, in all that's going on. Or maybe you have it. I don't know. Am I here? Am I, my goal is not to just stand up here and give a negative, unencouraging, like, hey, God bless you guys. The world sucks. You know, have a nice day type of deal. But it's to look at what we have in Acts chapter 16 because Paul and Silas have like the bad day of bad days here. And their response to that bad day, because of who they serve, the Lord Jesus, really is a key for us is how we can move on in a world that is literally going to hell in a handbasket. I'm not here to be a doomsdayer. I'm not here to say, start storing rice. I'm not here to advise you on those things. You do what God wants you to do. What I'm here to say is that we have to move on in our lives, Beyond what this world has to offer. Does that make sense? In other words, we are not limited by what's going on in this world. We can mourn our nation moving away from some of its founding principles. We can mourn what it might mean for us or the life we might want to give to our children. That's perfectly appropriate. You can, you know, I'm not saying don't be involved in voting your conscience or demonstrating. I'm not saying any of that. But to be able to say, Like Jesus told us, I am a pilgrim. The United States is not my home. I am literally passing through this nation. And I have one job, and it's to love people and to let them know Jesus loves them. So they can strip my rights, they can strip my money, they can strip justice. They can do all those things and it will suck the more it happens. But it has nothing to do with us because our job doesn't change and our Lord doesn't change and our life and its life source doesn't change. I like how C.S. Lewis says it. He says, Civilizations and cultures and nations, those are to us as to a life of a gnat because we are eternal. And the more that we can make decisions, because it's a day-by-day decision, that's what we'll talk about today, in an indestructible life, the more that we make the moment-by-moment decisions in the hardest times, those will be the times that we rise above and actually live the life that God has for us that is literally completely detached of the trials of this life, other than the fact that these trials hone us and purge us of earth. And when we begin to make those decisions to rise above all the destruction, when we begin to to, to reconcile and to recognize that we're not dragged down by these discouraging and horrible circumstances that are in the world right now, the more we make those decisions, the more we grow. And all of a sudden, joy isn't this elusive thing that we kind of think about and pretend like maybe we could have someday. But it becomes the actual reality we walk in. But here's the thing. Being a victor is always way harder than being a victim. And what we're going to see is that Paul and Silas in this passage, they get the snot victimized out of them. And we find them singing and worshiping. So when we read this and we consider it, the goal here today is not to say, hey, they sing, so we should sing. But the goal here is to say, why did they sing? What spawned in them? How did this come about? What was in them that they were able to be in the worst of circumstances and be able to overcome it? And so in verse 16, we read, he says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaims to you the way of salvation. Excuse me. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave, over, uh, gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they uh, had been inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received the or- this order, he put them into the inner prison And fastened their feet in the stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And we'll stop there. So, this is the embodiment of no good deed goes unpunished. In the Revised Standard Edition, it says, one day when they were going to the place of prayer. And that's, that kind of really captures the Greek idea here. It's that they were commonly going to the place of prayer. And one time in their commonality, in their normal schedule, in their normal life journey, a slave girl begins to follow them. So they're just living their life. They're just involved with with building the kingdom of God. They're just involved in praying with Lydia, meeting people. They're meeting outdoors, having these prayer meetings, all these things that are going on. And one day as they're doing this, this demon-possessed slave girl begins to follow them. And she begins to shout out, and it sounds like actually pretty good press. She begins to shout out, These guys are followers of the Most High God, and they're teaching you the way of salvation. And at first glance, you're like, That seems pretty legit. Like, I wouldn't, it'd be a little embarrassing, but you know, have this herald that just follows you around, like, This person is legit. <laughs> you should listen to them. But the thing is that the, the, the actual literal translation, and if, if we were to translate it in English, when it says uh, that, that she had a spirit of divination, it in English, it literally, she had a spirit. She had a python. <laughs> so why? Basically, this is a reference to the priestess of, the, uh, of Apollos. So the, the, one of the original priestess of Apollos in Delphi in Greece was rumored, and thousands would go see this woman, rumored to uh, basically be able to predict the future. And so many people went to her. And Apollos, in the lore of uh, mythology, Apollos uh, basically indwelt a python. And so she was thought to be possessed by Apollos. And so the conclusion was anybody who is is essentially possessed by the spirit of the python or Apollos is able to predict the future. So that's why they, for our benefit, if you're ever curious, you're reading a a literal translation someday and it says... uh, (laughs) A spirit of python, that's the idea, that she was possessed by Apollos. Would have been the Greek assumption or the Roman assumption about why she was able to predict the future. But Luke here gives us the real deal, and that is that she's possessed by a demonic being. And this demonic being evidently is able to predict the future. And because of this uh, advantage, as it were, for these slave owners, they're able to make money from her. And I bet they did. A soothsayer, uh, you know, somebody who could go in, read your palm, whatever. But she was actually able to predict people, their futures. So they're on their way. One day she started following them, if we're careful readers. But if, if it goes on, it says that she followed them for many days. And the reason I bring that up is it wasn't like she, you know, Paul and and uh, Silas and uh, Timothy and Luke are on their way to the place of prayer. This girl shows up behind them. Oh, you're your, your servants of the Most High God. And Paul's just like, oh, come on, shut up, you know, come out of her. Like as if he fleshed out and then used the Spirit of God to accomplish what he was angry about. Does that make sense? But this went on for many days. And it, so it begs the question, why didn't he cast out the demon the first day? Why didn't he cast out the demon the second day? the third day, the fourth day. I don't know how many days, many days is. But you feel like the cast out could have happened a lot sooner, don't you? I don't know why. The Bible doesn't tell us why. But I think there's some lessons that we can learn from this. Number one, there was patience that was exercised. And a lot of this book has, or this chapter I should say, has to do with patience. Patience in prison. Patience being followed around by demons-possessed people announcing your presence. I mean, how does... Distracting would it be if we we're having church right now and somebody were to walk in and be like, these are servants of the Most High God who teach you the way of salvation. We'd be like, okay, cool, thanks. Could you, you know, give us a second? But you're the, it would be, you couldn't have church. So this, this person's starting to not, it's not just that she's annoying Paul, like, ah, oh, get away from me, you know, you're kind of chapping me that you keep announcing. But it's that she's disrupting God's work. There's patience, patience, and whatever happens, the Lord speaks to him, but he comes to this place. And the word annoyed in there, it means to be tired out, to be completely exhausted. So the idea is that he got completely exhausted with what was happening there. Although I will say that the word for annoyed, it's in the New Testament twice, and both times it's translated annoyed. So I think the idea was that he was annoyed and they, you know what was happening. God's work was being thwarted. He was now being associated with someone who is believed to be possessed by Apollo, there's a very good chance that when she's announcing that they follow the Most High God, that they're just the people are assuming because people will hear what they want to hear. Oftentimes, oh, he, she, she must mean that they're servants of Apollo or of Paul. I mean, uh, Apollo. Uh, so there's it's bad press. It's a bad deal. So he ends up saying, you know what? Come out of here. Come out of her, you evil spirit. And the spirit does. We don't know what happens to her at that point. Maybe they gave her the gospel and she got saved. Maybe she ran away. We don't know. But what we do know is that when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And this is is kind of where we're at as a society. When they perceived their chance of gain was gone, there was punishment to be had. Jesus told us in the last days, like we mentioned, That everything that is good will be called bad, and that everything that is bad will be called good. So we don't have to be surprised by that, right? When we turn on the news and and we see looting or destruction, and it doesn't matter which political party it is, we don't have to say, oh, this is good. This is really good. Burning people's stuff is bad, stealing is bad, but it's heralded as good. Now, maybe we're not involved in that, but you know, it's one of the things that I've noticed for, I don't know, a while, not that I'm some prophet or something, but as a society, we haven't really, for many of us as a church, we haven't necessarily adopted those ideas, but it seems like many of us have adopted the social ideas, kind of getting back to what we talked about. Many of us, myself included, we don't like to be told what's right and what's wrong. And in fact, if somebody does wrong us, many times our instinct isn't to forgive them and say, hey, let's work this out. Our instinct is to blast them and then to find as many people as we can that will agree with us and to to help them have them blast that person, too. And and I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm really not. But I can't I probably can't count how many people over the years have left the church because they were offended. And I'm not saying it wasn't our fault. <laughs> I'm not saying, like, all oh, those people, I can't believe it. I'm just saying that they weren't willing to, to come talk about it. They weren't willing to come say, like, hey, you offended me. You know, when you said this, what did you mean by that? Or how many of us have individual, individual relationships that someone, we heard someone said something, and we cut them out of our lives? And it's, it's just bizarre to me how is the church, and I'm, I'm speaking generically, I'm not saying you guys, because I have no idea, I don't follow you around. But for many of us, we've kind of taken this weird position, and it's from the world. And we've taken what's evil, and we've called it good. It's good for me to, to, to socially reject and to, when I get offended, to not forgive and to just push out of my life and, and all these things. So we may not have adopted that we think rioting is a valid way of getting things done or you know certain sexual ideas in this world. We may not have adopted those things, but there are things that we have adopted. And we have to be careful with those things. Because what's good is still good, and what's evil is still evil. Anyway, all I have to say is, Paul has this experience, and he does something really good. He casts a demon out of this slave girl. This girl has nothing going for her. She can't even control herself. She's demon-possessed, and Paul sets her free. And so for that, he's he's just absolutely uh, punished, and Silas too, for being by proxy. And I think, if I could make another, forgive me, is anybody who, who, you don't have to raise your hand if you want privacy, but who here has seen I Am Legend? Woo, last night. All right, five of us. For reals? For real. Nice work. <laughs> I don't recommend movies because I'm a Christian. But <laughs> <laughs> if you've ever seen I Am Legend, it is PG-13. I don't believe there's any sex in it at all. There might be some language, but it's a zombie movie. But in... In the end of the movie, Will Smith, so if you haven't seen it, sorry about your luck, but in the end of the movie, Will Smith discovers that the, uh, the, the solve, the cure for this, uh, it was a rabies vaccine gone bad or something like that, I can't remember, the, or a vaccine for cancer that goes bad, and it, and it causes this rabies in people. This is getting way longer than I wanted to. to. So, but in the end of the movie, he's holding a vial of his blood because he's immune to it. It's, very, it's a very Christ-type ending to the movie. And he, he's got this vial of his own blood, and there's, he's like standing behind this like bulletproof glass wall. And, and like these zombies, it's not the slow type of zombies, you know, it's the fast zombies, the worst kind. And uh, he's standing behind this glass wall, and they're pounding their heads on the glass wall, trying to get to, to kill him, to eat him. And he's screaming at them, I can save you. And he's got a vial of his blood and his saying, I can save you, I can save you. And, the, and they're just pounding their heads on the wall and, they're, and they're, they're starting to bruise, and they're, they're bleeding, and he's screaming, and, it's, and it's, just, it's just a movie scene, so it's not like I you know, I'm just, it is what it is. But watching that, I thought, this is what the ministry is. Yeah. This is like legitimately what, and, and it's just not like my ministry, I mean, this is what it is to help people. And so in the end, he ends up basically Sticking this lady and her son with his vial of blood into a, a furnace, that's not going, into a furnace, and he, he, has, he runs out into the zombies and pulls a grenade so that she can get out and bring her blood to a clinic, his blood to a clinic, basically. But the point is, like, in this world, it's so much like that. We have the answer. We have, well, Christ, but people are just going to slam their heads, They're not going to be interested. And it can be so discouraging because you're like, no, I love you. I care about you. My Lord has the answer for you. He has everything that you need, and and people aren't going to receive it. And that's their right. They have the right to do that. God gave them the right to say no. But we cannot get discouraged because good is being called evil, and evil is being called good. We cannot be discouraged because people are slamming their heads, insisting on destruction, because that's what you see. We do it too in minor ways and sometimes in major ways. It's just the world that we live in. And so Paul and Silas, here they are, and they do something really simple. They just heal a woman. They heal someone. And their reward for that is a huge flogging. And then to be stuck in prison. And the idea that they were put in fetters, it could be one of two things. It could be that they were actually, um, like, chained, kind of like, you, you know, you see, or that they were literally put in, uh, you've probably seen shows or movies, when they, you have know, that one dude who's, like, on a podium and he's, you know, stuck in the, sh- the shackle thing, right, the wood thing, and his head and his wrists are through. That was common, that they would do that with their feet. And so that you, you would basically lay down in your prison cell and your feet would be stuck in that wood shackle and you would just lay there. So you urinated on yourself, you pooped on yourself, and whoever was next to you, and that's just how you rolled. And so whatever one, that's, that's what's going on. That's his reward for that, not to mention being stripped nude and beat in front of the entire city. So if there's anybody that has the right to say, we've been victimized, and no part of this am I trying to say or minimize victimization. So please don't come away with that, like James is making fun of victim or victim blaming or victim shaming. I'm not doing any of that. I'm saying if you've been victimized, like they've been victimized, you don't have to live in it. But it's hard not to live in it. Because victory is a way tougher choice than identifying as a victim. It's way tougher. And so what happens with Paul and Silas, they've been wrongfully arrested by the government. They are actually Roman citizens. Both Paul and Silas are. And Roman citizens could not be flogged like they got flogged in Roman times. They were Roman citizens. They had had the right to a trial before any kind of punishment, other than being held, any kind of punishment was afforded them. So every one of their civil rights as Romans, their their rights as human beings to not be stripped naked and beat in front of a crowd, every one of their rights was violated. And then they end up in prison, shackled. And their response to that is, around midnight, they begin to sing and to pray. And you have to ask ourselves, how do they come to this decision? How does this happen? Did did Silas turn to Paul and say, well, you know, you're an apostle, you need to be a good example, so, you know, me, 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 me. Why you start off as a C here and, like, get something going? Do they have some sort of, like, this is what a good Christian does, so we better do this? You know, all the kind of weird things that go through our head sometimes? Or do they sing because they're making a choice to choose a different path for themselves and to overcome the worst that the temporal world can handle, can hand them? and to continue to be involved in the very thing they're called to, which is building the kingdom of heaven. They are shackled, they are beat to pulp, and the the prisoners are listening to them. And what they do in this time is they actually, by small decisions and small actions, overcome the world and build the kingdom of heaven in the most vulnerable victimized, terrible place a person can be. They smash what Satan is trying to do. And they do it by simple decisions. So here's the thing for you and I. Regardless of what rights have been taken, what decency has been taken, you can overcome it. It's a lot easier for me to stand up and say it than it is for us to do. I acknowledge that. But it's possible. And it's possible because the life that we have and the Holy Spirit that is in us is so much stronger than the spirit of this world and what Satan has. But this is the kicker. You have to choose it. You have to decide to sing. You have to decide to pray. You have to decide it. Your church can't decide it for you. Your kids can't decide it for you. Your parents can't. Your brothers and sisters can't. No one can decide but you. And this isn't like I'm angry or anything like that. I really just, for as cheesy as it is, eternal life is here. It's now. Joy is this moment. But will we choose it? I love fantasy. I'm about as nerdy as they come. You wouldn't know for my physique, but it's true. <laughs> I absolutely love it. I've listened to a book series called The Wheel of Time. I've read it and, and listened to it two and a half times now, and I'll probably listen to it on my way home. Because I, I, just, I just, it's a fun fantasy thing. And it's got all these different things, that, you know, components to it. It's very intricate. I really enjoy it. And I don't know about you, but for me... I get discouraged a lot. I get ready to give up a lot. You can ask my wife. Every Sunday, I'm like, I quit. I'm done. I don't, you know, don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to go work at Jiffy Lube again, because that was easy. Now, I'm no victim here. I'm a baby. So I have an option when I'm driving home on Sunday afternoons. I can listen to the Wheel of Time. And I'll get lost in the Wheel of Time. And I'll be like, you get him, Randall Thor. Channel the power. Yes, right? It's how nerdy it gets. Or sometimes the Holy Spirit says, James, why don't you listen to some worship music? And I'm like, well, I could. That is an option, Holy Spirit. But that would entail me all of a sudden not focusing on myself or being distracted by something that I enjoy. I would actually have to acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord. And that he has power. And that he's calling me to something greater. I would actually have to turn the focus off of myself and onto the Lord. And if I did that, I couldn't blame other people for my problems. And I couldn't wallow in my despair. And I couldn't feel justified in my anxiety. So why would I want to listen to worship music and have to rise to that occasion When I can just listen to the Wheel of Time and continue in the easy street of victimization and just be distracted for a time. We live in a crazy world where many of us, and I'm not making any accusations for anybody here because I don't know, but many of us choose distraction over victory because it's just easier and the flesh loves it. And that's not an angry accusation. That's not I'm trying to pick on anybody. That's the fact that you and I in this very moment can choose eternal significance on this, in this planet. Amen. And when we actually begin to make that tiny, tiny choice where the wheel of time gets turned off and David Crowder or whatever your cup of tea is, thrice, whatever, gets turned on and all of a sudden the thought process has to change but that starts something inside of us it starts victory it leaves behind the old things that we identify with or comfort ourselves with the temporary things that leave us wanting and dry and instead it fuels us it waters us and for so many of us we get stuck me too me me i don't know really, me i get stuck Where I know victory is just kind of, it's right there. And I can see it. And I know the steps that it takes to get it and to have the joy and the peace. But my flesh rages and says, no, it's so much easier to not do that. It's so much easier that I can just keep blaming other people. And whenever somebody talks to me, I can say, yeah, I have some problems, but that person, that person has serious problems. And then I never get the victory. So they may have the serious problems, but I don't have the victory. Or when I start to listen to that music and I begin to worship, all of a sudden I have to be truthful. Lord, you can pay my bills. It doesn't matter if the food chain fails because either I'll starve to death to your glory or you'll provide for me what I need. It doesn't matter if the political systems fail. It doesn't matter if the banks fail. It doesn't matter if they foreclose on my house. Because I have a mission, and it's, it's to proclaim Christ. And I can do it hungry, and I can do it full. And I can do it as a homeowner, and I can do it homeless. Yes. Amen. So for you and I, we don't have to worry about all the temporal stuff that this world tells us we have to worry about. It only drags us down. We just have to decide, do we want victory or do we not? And if you don't, that's fine. But just be honest about it. Let's be honest with ourselves and with the Lord and say, I don't want victory. Victory sucks because it's hard. It's much easier for me to hate and have anxiety and just medicate that with Netflix and weed. It's a ways easier life. Or to say, you know what? I'm going to heed the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to take a step forward. Whatever that is. I'm not saying it's listen to worship music on your way home. That's your choice. But just whatever God is calling you to. What is he saying to you? Is he saying forgive someone and forget? In other words, not that you necessarily forget the event, but you don't keep bringing it up. Is he he saying to you that you should, I don't know. I I don't know what he's saying to you. I know what he's saying to me. And for me in my life in this moment, it's to stop worrying about the financial thing. Because I can worry about it. I shouldn't. But every, every, every time I sit across from my kids at our table, we have breakfast in the morning together, and in my mind, I can worry about it and go, you know, are we going to be able to buy eggs next week? What's going to happen? Our capital has 20,000 troops in it. We're like a couple days from being Kosovo. I mean, like literally some really bad stuff could happen here. And that's okay. Because that doesn't pertain to us. We might suffer because of it. But we're going to preach in it. Because we have Christ. So I just want to encourage you. Like these guys have the worst day of their life to date. There's some other bad stuff. He, Paul gets beat two more times than we know of. He gets shipwrecked. He starves. He has all these things. But constantly coming back and making a decision. I could do, I could wallow, or I could sing. And it's always just that. It's it's a very difficult, very simple decision in all aspects of our life with everything and everybody that we deal with. And when the anxiety comes up, This is why Christianity is a battle. Because you ever thought, let's let's take my own anxiety, money. I don't want to see my kids starve. And I like being comfortable. So there's that. So the anxiety comes up, not about being comfortable. That I have to rationalize away and say it doesn't really matter. But what if I have to watch my kids starve? Or what if the state wants to retrain my children to say that homosexuality is legitimate? And they take them from me. What if, they, what if the state comes along and says, we know that for 13 years you taught out of the Bible, which is now outlawed, and we know that your children need to be retrained. And so we're going to bring them into to a place to do that. I mean, this is not far-fetched stuff. This is not, you know, conspiracy theory stuff. This is something that has happened all through the life of the world that we live in. So, so those are fears for me. So when I get up in the morning and I come to the, the breakfast table and we're eating and I'm looking at the kids and these these things, they, they start to come up and I go, oh Lord, what, are, what, are, what am I going to do? I don't want to go preach your word. I don't want to tell people about you. It gets my kids taken away. I don't want to be impoverished be free for your kingdom. I want to be able to Go vacation. I feel like Asaph. It's one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 76, where he's like, the wicked, their eye bulges with fatness, and they never get sick, and they do whatever they want, and nothing ever bad happens to them. Sometimes I get a little Asaf-y. <laughs> and I have a choice in that moment, right? Because the Holy Spirit comes to me and says, hey, that's, that's, not, how, that's not true. It's, not, it's, it's true that that could happen to me, but it's, it's, I don't have to live in fear of that. Because I can say the Lord loves my kids. And to be honest, that's the hardest one in the world. You're like, okay, Lord, you're all loving, you're all knowing, but could you really take care of my kids? I mean, I feel like, you know, but I have to take that thought captive. And I have to deal with that thought. This is what Christianity is. I'm not trying to be redundant or boring, but this is what Christianity is. It's taking our thoughts captive. And when that thought comes up that is not of Christ, to label it, that's not of you, Lord. Fear and and anger in certain circumstances, and these these are not of you. I'm not going to continue in that thought process because I can continue, right? I can sit at the breakfast table, methodically shovel in my scrambled eggs, looking at the kids and spiraling in my thoughts. Or in the very moment I take it captive and I say, Lord, these are your children. You love them. I'm going to do my best as far as I can, keep them safe as much as I can, and then it's going to be up to you, and I have to let you do what you're going to do. And then I go, and then, I, and then so I, I have those thoughts, and then I move on. But let's say two seconds later, the thought comes back. But what if? That's the worst thought in the world. What if? What if? And it happens so fast in a moment, just the what if. Then I say, no, you know what? That's not of you, Lord. And I'm not going to give my processing power to that. I'm going to think about something else. And that's where things like hymns or Bible verses that maybe you've posted up or whatever, or texting even, that's where those tools come into play. There's nothing inherently spiritual as having Bible verses all over your house. If you never look at them, there's no benefit to that. There's not not God, God goes, oh, you put my word up. Yay, you. No, they're tools. That's why we have that stuff. That's why there's Bible verses. We won't admit it, but they're on the other side of our toilets. Because you're there for a while. You can think about it. That's why we have them on the refrigerator, because we're there more than we want to admit, right? That's why we put verses there. To minister to us. That's what church is supposed to be. So that you can come here, maybe hear some word, but then you can interact with one another. Hey, will you pray for me? I'm tanking hard. I'm giving in to my fear. I like victimization. It's so comforting. I don't want to be a victor because that means I have to try. Will you help me to want to try? Isn't it interesting that God tells us in Philippians that he works in us both the willing and the doing of his own good pleasure? In other words, God even works on your heart so that you might desire his things. And the psalmist says that, that uh, he gives us the desires of our hearts. That does not mean that God gives you everything your heart wanted. Can you imagine how terrible your life would be if God gave you everything that you wanted? Or how terrible everybody else's life would be around you? No, it's that he gives you the desires for your heart. In other words, he works in your heart and changes your desires. Not that he gives you everything he wants, he gives you the wants that are appropriate to have. Right on, thank you. And so for us, it's just moving forward in those moment-by-moment battles to say, no, I'm not going to succumb to this. And we have the power to do that. But will we do it? And and I hope we will. In this case, they start singing, and there's that little piece, and the prisoners heard them. This. I think this is a good note for me and for us. People hear us. The other people around us, they hear us. We influence our children. We influence our church. We influence our friend. We influence our coworkers. All the time with what's coming out of our mouth. And when they see us in the most difficult of times, what end are we proclaiming to them? Are we proclaiming to them that God sucks and he's wronged me and he owes me Is that what I proclaim at work? Are we proclaiming to Him, yeah, this world sucks, but God's amazing. And He's working and He's doing, and I don't have to sweat these things. So the thing is, we don't have to go out of here perfect people. We're probably not going to. I'm not. I'd like to. I'm not making excuses. But we do need to go out of here having made a decision. Are we going to be victors or victims? Are we going to build the kingdom or are we going to detract from it? And we have all these other people in this room and all the people from first service to help us do that. It's just all for us to, if you will, take advantage of that. I guess that's really all I have to say. Please don't walk out of here without deciding on victory. And if you decide on victory, tell someone. And take them along on the journey for you, and 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 just be honest—a prayer partner, or just someone that you know, a spouse, or who it doesn't matter who it is, but just someone to say, "I've decided this, but I know tomorrow could be different. So, can you walk through this with me?" That's what we're all here for. And so Paul, he's got Silas. Silas has Paul. They start doing these things. They're singing, and voila, they're delivered. And this amazing thing happens. And we'll talk about the amazing thing next week because uh, it wouldn't split up nicely otherwise. <laughs> but next week, we'll talk about how the prison shakes and they're set free. And it's amazing. They're set free. The jailer gets saved. His family gets saved. The jailer cleans Paul and Silas's wounds personally. He gives them food. And then Paul and Silas willingly go back into the prison after that happens to be released later. And for all the patriots, they insist on their rights too. So, (laughs) as Romans. Great things are afoot for us. And this, we do not have to be dragged down by all the discouraging things that are going on. Because they're not, like here's our life and what we've been called to in Christ. Here's what we need. Here's the spiritual reality. And here's like politics and economics. They're right here. And these, they, they don't, this one doesn't affect this one. But this one can absolutely affect this one. So, I love you guys. And uh, let's be overcomers. I feel like there should be something grand or amazing to say, but I don't have it. But go out of here a victor. It's, it's readily available. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great kindness and your great mercy to us. Lord, thank you for examples like Paul and Silas, for examples of how the Holy Spirit moves and works. And I pray this week, would you send your spirit and cause your spirit to abide upon us and speak to our hearts. And in places in the past where we've rejected you and chosen victimization, chosen to wallow, I pray we choose victory. Lord, I pray, even as David prayed there, Lord, when your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up like a pot shard. Lord, would you please lay your hand heavily upon us by your mercy so that we would know the dryness and know just the death of our own sin. Lord, we pray for revival in our own hearts, in our church, in our community. We pray, Lord, that you would begin to save people in droves, Lord, we pray that you would enable us to show our communities, to, to love our neighbors in a way that they'd be able to understand it. They wouldn't feel threatened by the virus or whatever. Lord, help us to love one another. Help us to build relationships and to go into the community and love our neighbor. Lord, we, we don't want to slow down or to kind of peter out in this race. We want to run strong to the end. So we pray, Lord, that you would be exalted in our hearts, in our lives, in our church, and that you would do great things exceedingly abundantly, above all we could ask or think. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.